0: Thank you. I'm going to take over now and uh, do the Bible reading. It's from Matthew, chapter 21, and verses 1 to 14. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Ga- in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves.
1: There's uh, nothing like the importance of a big entrance. Um, You can see some pictures on the screen, some of which were memorable for the right reasons, some of which were memorable for the wrong reasons. You can see a picture Uh, of a bride. It's it's the big moment in a wedding that can happen again with a limited number of people but as a bride journeys down the aisle they're not allowed to be held uh, anymore by their father's hand but they make it to the groom at the end of the aisle and they get married. It's a great day of celebration. Anthony Joshua came in a great celebration in his last fight with fireworks and white gloves and music. It was quite an entrance. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, a minute and a half, as shadowy figure comes across the screen to meet Peter O'Toole. Who could it be? And then there was Theresa May, who danced. I'll leave that to your imagination, if that was a great entrance or not, to the Conservative Party uh, gathering. But here we have before us in Matthew chapter 21, a very, very significant moment, not just in Matthew's Gospel, but in the whole of the Bible. Matthew is showing us, along with the other gospel writers, that the King comes. The King comes on Palm Sunday. The King comes surrounded by a crowd of people. And the King comes surrounded by significance and uh, imagery from the Old Testament that I want to explore with you this morning. It's very important to understand, as we understand the imagery, something about the kingship of Jesus. Maybe the first time that you're considering who Jesus is and what it means. If it's the first time that uh, you've joined us this morning, you're most welcome. But the first uh, thing I want us to think about, because I think it's in Matthew chapter 21, is that Jesus is an extraordinary king because he's so confrontational. So the first thing I want us to think about. Jesus is a confrontational king. What do I mean? If you uh, put the gospel side by side you'd notice that uh, these four groups of people, these four elements pop up in each of the accounts of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the capital city, Jerusalem. There's the blind man, there's the crowd, there's the animal, there's the temple. And as Jesus enters into the capital city of the then uh, known world of Israel, there's a change in his communication strategy. If he was employing uh, marketing experts or communication experts, up until now, when anyone has called his name, as he's healed a demon, uh, sorry, cast out a demon, as he's he's healed uh, a blind person or a lame person, as he does all his miracles, there's always a shush from Jesus. Jesus doesn't want anyone to know who he is. Jesus doesn't want anyone to know his identity. If Jesus arrived in the modern world today, he would be saying, don't tweet that. Um, Don't send that message. Don't ring that person on your mobile. I do not want people to know who I am. Because as people know who Jesus is, his true identity, it forces his agenda. It forces the agenda in the the minds of the religious leaders Uh, And it would result in his imprisonment or even in his death. And so Jesus, up until this point, has said as part of his communication strategy, don't let anyone know who I am. Don't tell anyone. Don't share this information. But as he arrives in Jerusalem, everything has changed. It's changed in chapter 21 and even in the moments before you've got a bible you might want to just flick back to the the sentences that precede our passage and if you look at Matthew 20 verses 29 to 34 you, you meet two blind men these two blind men notice Jesus they they hear the crowd they, they sense the cacophony they sense the excitement and in Matthew chapter 20 verse 31 the blind men called out to Jesus. They throw themselves on his character. They sense something of his power and work. And they shout out in sentence 31 of chapter 20, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And, and Jesus, if it was according to plan, he would say, Shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. What do you want from me? Don't say those words. Don't, don't let people know my identity. But Jesus doesn't. Now, Son of David, that's a a title for Jesus. It reveals his identity. And it's another way of saying, you're God's appointed king. You're Messiah. You're you're God's chosen one. You're the one that the prophets point to. And the blind men who can't see physically can see something ever so clearly spiritually. Jesus, we see who you are. And we throw ourselves on your mercy. What do you want from me, says Jesus? We want your mercy. Have mercy on us. And Jesus restores their sight. He he performs a a miracle like no one has seen before. You're the true king. You're you're God's appointed king. You're the Messiah. And Jesus, by his action, says yes, right in front of them as he heals them and they receive their sight. But look at the crowd, not just the blind men. it's, It's the crowd as well. This crowd is... They're before and after Jesus and they enter in Jerusalem, surrounding the person of their affections. Now, Bethpage and Bethany, they're they're two places just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They're very close. And Jesus frequented that location very, very often in the Gospels. It's it's where three of his closest friends live. It's Mary and Martha and Lazarus too. These two uh, villages were cheek and jowl. They were so close to each other. And so Jesus knew them intimately and he knew who lived there and he knew who, whose animals were there and where they were tied up. He knew the village so well. And so Jesus commands his disciples to say, go ahead of me and please accrue for me these two animals and I'm going to sit on one of them. It's not just the animals that Jesus knew, he knew the people. and It's not just the people who Jesus knew, the crowd from Bethany and Beth Page, They knew Jesus. I mean, just think about what they saw there. They saw with eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from death to life. They knew who Jesus was. If they weren't there for that event, they would have heard because it was so unique. They would have heard his glory revealed with The calling out of a dead man back to life again. They knew his power. They heard his reputation. This crowd that came from Bethany and Bethpage, they saw things. They were witnesses of things that no crowd has ever seen before. And now that crowd, at the bidding of Jesus, surrounds him in front of him and behind him. And uh, in verse 8, you can see the disciples are doing their work. They're following the instructions of Jesus. And in verse nine, the crowd surrounds Jesus. It's as if just as Jesus called for the animals to be brought to him, so too, the crowd are at his bidding as well. And in a sense that he gathers them. And as they surround him, what do they shout out? Verse 10. Hosanna. We sung it at the beginning of our service. Hosanna. You're the son of David. Hosanna, which means save us, save us son of david they are saying exactly what the blind men said have mercy on us save us son of david and they're quoting psalm 118 which is a messianic psalm a psalm about god's appointed king whom god would send to save his people and the whole city are stirred up in a fervor as god king comes I mean, Jesus was born in a backwater, kind of nowhere place, Bethlehem. I mean, who's heard of that? In a corner of the world, this dark corner, God chooses to reveal his majesty in his son's birth, surrounded by animals in a manger. And here, God's king comes into the center of Israel, into the capital city. There's no denying his might or power. You would hear the commotion, and you would see God's King coming, but coming on this beast of burden, this colt. He wasn't coming in as a general in a tank. He wasn't coming with fanfare. He wasn't coming with a jetpack in 2012 like the Queen entered the Olympic Stadium. But by his actions, riding when everyone else was walking on this animal, this beast of burden. He's confronting the city and he's confronting the religious leaders that now is the time. Now is the time for me to reveal my glory. He's confronting them. Do you see how confrontational he is? Now is the time not to reveal who I am up until this point. But now the blind men reveal his person. The crowd shout of his glory and identity. And here in Matthew 21, Matthew is revealing the person of Jesus Christ. He's so confrontational to the religious leaders. He says, You either need to exalt me onto a throne or you need to kill me upon a cross. Those are the two options because Jesus is so confrontational. And just as he's confrontational then, he's confrontational today. I mean, Matthew has said throughout the gospel, You can't select who Jesus is to you. You either accept all of him or you accept none of him. You have to give him everything or you give him none of him. You make him the center of your life or he's no king at all. He's savior and king. There's no part of your authority that King Jesus does not demand to have 100% rule and sway over. You can't say to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, Jesus as is revealed in the Gospels, well, I want this part of you, but I don't want that. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus who stilled the storm. That's not the Jesus who drives out demons and gives blind people back their sight. This Jesus, the Jesus who has authority over death and gives life to those who experience the coolness of the grave. He demands centrality in our lives. He commands authority over all because he's Lord. You can't say, come in, Saviour, stay out, King. You get all of Jesus or you get none of him. And Jesus here in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 12, is what we see his confrontational nature as he comes into the city Upon the back of a beast of burden with the shouts of the crowd. Now is the time for you to see my glory. So confrontational. But that's not all. Secondly, he's also countercultural. He's the countercultural king. And Matthew, is, Matthew is referencing history. And in history, 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabee. You can go to the British Museum and see a, a big bust on the wall. Simon Maccabee defeated the enemies of Israel and, and he was brought into the same streets that now Jesus rides through. Simon Maccabee rode into Jerusalem with people shouting and cheering his name, waving palm branches because he delivered them from their enemies. Simon Maccabees, 200 years before Jesus. You can go even further back. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, you have Jehu, Jehu, the, the victorious king of Israel, he comes in and people take off their cloaks and lay at his feet on the steps as he goes up into the temple in Jerusalem, 2 Kings 9. But here, Matthew wants us to make some more connections, not just to history, but back to the promises that God made. I mean, here's the king, verse 4, who comes in gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. Now, why would he say that, verse five, your king comes? And then the king is described as gentle. Why does Matthew make that reference point? One of the reasons is because he wants us to understand that Jesus is not just a historical figure like Simon of Maccabees. Jesus is a prophesied king. He's God's king, God's long-awaited king. And that there are two passages from the Old Testament that are helpful for us here. The first is in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, there's a prediction. There's a prediction of God's king who would come. He would come and he would defeat the enemies of God's people and he would bring prosperity. In the future, God would send a, a king to sit on his throne. But when he comes, Genesis 49, when he comes, nations will bow to him. He'll not just be the king of Israel, a localized king. He'll be king of the whole world. This is God's king, the king of the nations. His rule will not just extend to the ends of the world, not just to the ends of the known world, but the ends of the whole world, the whole cosmos, you could say. God's king will put everything right. Genesis 49 says there'll be no more thorns, no more vinegar. There'll be wine and there'll be celebration, a bit like yesterday, July the 4th, not just for the Americans, but for liberation in the UK. There'll be so much more wine flowing that you can wash your clothes in it. Imagine that. Might stain them a bit, but it's a picture in Genesis 49 of prosperity, of peace and loving rule and reign globally as God's king comes. God's king will come and deal with trouble. He'll vanquish the enemies of God and he'll bring a party, he'll bring a celebration like no other. But what kind of king or general comes on a donkey? No king does that if they're going to win in the ordinary way that we understand that word. Then there's Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 that's quoted in this passage in in Matthew chapter 21. See your king comes to you, gentle, meek, and riding on a donkey. He has to come gentle if he's on a donkey. He's going to be a victorious king uh, on a white steed or stallion so he can keep on fighting it looked very different to the definition of God's king, who's gentle and lowly. He's so countercultural. No Mercedes Benz, no Jaguar with four police on motorbikes, with overhead guard as well. No military might here, whether it be a steed or an elephant riding over the Andes or on the back of a, a, a tank coming into Afghanistan, you could say. Why is Jesus coming in on this lowly beast of burden? Because God wants us to see that God's king is so countercultural. What do I mean? Look at verse 12. Verse 12 to 14 that we saw a snippet of on the screen. God's king goes into God's temple. Whilst he's in God's temple, he overturns. He overturns the, the tables of the money changers. They were taking advantage of God. And Jesus has a zeal for the worship of his father. Here in Jerusalem, the spiritual barometer of the worship of God's people, it was so wrong. It becomes so perverted and inverted. God wasn't being worshipped. They were using God rather than serving him. They were using God rather than serving him. That's what sin always does. You can look back through the Bible, through the history of the Bible. you can see this as a repeated pattern sin always means that we use god rather than serve him and if that's what sin is shove off god i'm in charge no to your rules then salvation must be the opposite salvation is god's king putting himself in the place of the servant when god's people put themselves in the place of god's king that's what sin is so salvation god's rescue plan must be the opposite of that and that's God's king coming and serving rather than ruling and reigning in a heavy-handed way. We can see this in a couple of ways. Why do I wrestle so much with anxiety and why do you? Because we think that God we think that God should come through for us. We, we think that we know how God should rule and reign in our lives. And we know that we want to be in control. And when God doesn't come through to us, when things come into our minds in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, when anxiety pressures in, we think we could do a better, uh, a, a better job of it than God. And so we feel anxious and concerned about the present and fearful about the future. That's because we've made ourselves king. What's ultimately behind racism and social division It's when a group of people come together and decide that they are worth more than another group of people with a different colored skin or from a different social part um, of the world. It's servants putting themselves in the place of God's king. That's what's behind anxiety. That's what's behind social division. That's what's behind racism. And here we have God's king coming in a unique Countercultural way. Here we have the great difference of Christianity. At its core, God's king comes and puts himself in the place of a servant. God's king comes. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's riding in on a donkey instead of a steed, and he's saying to everybody, I'm the king of the world, but I'm not a king like you think. I mean, I could come and I could free you from the Romans. I could come and give you liberation. It would be temporary until you turned around and rejected me and enslaved someone else. But if I just liberated you for the Romans for a short period of time, there would be freedom. But what about the need in your heart? Who's going to deal with your guilt? You can't deal with that. Who's going to deal with your spiritual nakedness and longing? You can't deal with that. There's a real slavery that the Romans are just a picture of. There's a real slavery, and I've come to offer you and to secure for you real liberation. See the paradox? Jesus is the countercultural king. And here's what's so beautiful about this. If this gentle, this dying king, this servant king, who's higher than the heavens, he comes so low, the king on the donkey, the gentle king, the servant king, Here's what's so powerful and so unique about Christianity. Just as this king came into Jerusalem, this king, by the power of his spirit, can come into your heart. And one of the signs that he does that, that he rules in your heart, just like he rules in the cosmos, is that he will transform you into a gentle person too. He'll make you into a gentle, kingly person too. I mean, that's the whole point of the gospel. It's so unique. It's so different from any other worldview. It's so different from every other religion. God's strength is revealed, not in might or power, but in weakness. I mean, every other religion, every other philosophy says, I'm going to make you a You can clean up your life. You can be reincarnated if you work hard enough. Your future is brighter than your past because if you work hard enough, then God will owe you. That's how most, if not every other religious and worldview works. You can save yourself by your strength. You just need to work hard enough and do the right things and stop going to the wrong places and go to the right places. That's what the disciples want. God save us Save us by your strength, reveal the strength of your arm. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't be saved until you see that I must die. My strength is revealed by weakness. My might will be received in the moment of greatest weakness upon the cross, outside these city walls that we're just entering into in Matthew chapter 21. You see, Christianity is about a living relationship with the maker and sustainer, of the whole world, of the whole cosmos. He came and he died in our place. He took our rebellion and sin and saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. He took all the just merits of our rebellion upon himself, which means we're not saved by our strength. I'm saved and you can be saved too by God's grace and his grace is revealed in his weakness. We're not... Bes- we're not rescued by rolling up our sleeves and demonstrating our moral efforts. We're saved by his mercy. Like the blind men, son of David, have mercy on us. I mean, if you're saved by your strength, let's just think that through. If you're saved by your strength, you feel very good about yourselves when you're living up to your standards, when things are going well. But when you have a bad day, you feel like a failure. When something terrible happens to you and you're living up to your own standards, you'll be mad at God. You'll say, you owe me. You owe me because I thought I could get to you by my own moral effort. But if you feel like you're failing your standards, you'll be mad at yourself. And you'll think, well, I guess I deserve this. You see how that works? If if you're working hard, then God owes you. If you... If you have a bad day and you're not living up to your standards, then you think, well, maybe I guess I deserve this. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you know you're saved by God's strength that's demonstrated in weakness, if you know that you're saved and rescued by an all-powerful but a gentle king, then that changes you, that transforms you. And that means that you can move out into the world in gentleness. When bad things happen to you, you know that you can trust Your good, good father. Things don't happen by accident in God's economy. He's rescued us. He's transforming us. He's in complete control of the entry into Jerusalem. And that's a little picture of the fact that God is in complete control of everything in our lives. And he's come in his strength, revealed in gentleness and mercy to reveal his glory to us. When bad things happen in our lives, God is never out of control. He always works for our good. He always works for his glory. And he always works gently. We can't see that in the present sometimes, but we can always see it with the benefit of hindsight. That's the, the paradoxical, the counter-cultural picture of God's confrontational kingship and his counter-cultural kingship too. But... Lastly, God is not just confrontational and countercultural. He's also transformational. That's a long word. Couldn't think of a shorter one. Sorry. He's transformational in his kingship too. I mean, look at this phrase. Look at this phrase. Look, behold, it says, your king comes to you gentle. Your king comes to you gentle. I love the fact that it says Jesus He comes. It's in the present tense. It's not He will come. It's not that He's left you and He will come back. It's not that He's away somewhere and He's forgotten you. It says, Your King comes. John's Gospel tells us that these uh, tree branches are palm branches. It's a wonderful detail that Matthew omits. They were palm trees that the people took down and waved in celebration at the arrival of king jesus now we know what the palms are about from the bible i think in psalm 96 it says in the future when god's king comes to rule and to reign when his majesty is revealed it says there'll be a cosmic celebration psalm 96 it says let all the heavens be glad let the earth rejoice then shall the the trees of the wood shall they sing for joy When he comes to judge the earth, when God's justice is revealed, isn't that interesting? The world celebrates. Death and tears, injustice is vanquished and God's king comes. And the trees of the field are clapping their hands. Isaiah 55 verse 12 says this, You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Then the mountains and the hills will break forth in singing and the trees will clap their hands. When God's King returns a second time, there'll be a global cosmic celebration. Not just as the opening of hairdress salons and and pubs and restaurants like there was yesterday. When God's King comes, there'll be a celebration the lights of the world will never see again. J.R. Tolkien uh, was inspired by this when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, there was uh, the earth, the, the ants, the trees are on the move. It's, it's a, a sign of the celebration of the cosmos at the return of the king. And one day, the mountains and the hills will be leaping. The trees will be clapping and celebrating. And the crowd surrounding the King Jesus as he comes and in his confrontational, countercultural, transformational nature, They're just a picture of what will happen in eternity, present and future. But God is transformational, not just in terms of the cosmos, but in every human heart. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor a few centuries ago in New England, and he wrestled with this to say, if that's what the cosmos will be doing, what will we be doing? We're not going to be on harps on cloud nine, just playing along a ditty to Jesus. He says, imagine this, if the cosmos will be transformed at the return of the king, the transformational king, how will men and women, boys and girls, how will they be transformed? He put it like this. If you've got uh, five senses now, maybe you'll have a hundred then. If you've got five senses now, you're just like a block of wood, but there you'll be transformed. Maybe you'll have a hundred, maybe you'll have a thousand senses then you won't be able to imagine or grasp now with our finite mind how great the future will be. I mean, the palm trees are just a foretaste of that great day when the king truly returns. I mean, the trees are going to be singing, the mountains will be leaping and rejoicing, and that's what we'll be like. Now we're just, we're just a piece of wood. In the future, we'll have 500, 1,000 senses, says Jonathan Edwards. We'll no longer be wood-like. We'll be multi-dimensional will be 2.0 it's absolutely astonishing promise from the lips of Jesus behold he your king comes in the present but on the one hand Jesus as he came his majesty was limited it was restricted as he walked the earth his might and his majesty that are infinite became finite for a season as he was born into a womb until he died on the cross, until he was resurrected. There are glimpses that broke out like at the transfiguration where his glory was beheld. But Matthew says, your king comes and he comes gently. I mean, what sort of king is this? He takes lepers. He takes the blind. He takes the lame. He takes the children. He takes prostitutes. What kind of king is this? Look, if you just understand the king as a confrontational king, you could give yourself to Christ in that way. But it will make you only a limited person. He's not just confrontational, he's also gentle. If you think he's just confrontational, you could still try and save yourself. You need to see that he's gentle too and it's that truth that can transform the human heart but if you see him as both if you're confronted by his kingship if you meet him as a gentle Lord seeing that he saved you through his loving weakness that truth and that truth alone can transform you what's the future gonna hold Will there be a local lockdown? Will there be another national lockdown? Will we ever get rid of COVID-19? Will it ever be mitigated? Will it just never be defeated? I don't know. But Jesus says, I'm the coming king. The trees are going to be singing. The mountains are going to be tap dancing. Just think what you and I can do to praise him. Verse nine says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's behold again, your king comes.